Wednesday, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 2 Samuel. We're in 2 Samuel today, so open up your Bibles to the second book of Samuel, chapter one. As Les and I were sharing this morning briefly, uh, he said, this is a tough chapter, and it is. It's a hard chapter, but rather than blaze through it and get over it, we're gonna divide it and spend a couple weeks on it. And uh, that, is, that is with uh, good reason. But just look at it, uh, 2 Samuel chapter one in your Bibles, verse one. It came about after the death of Saul. When David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, that David remained two days in Ziklag. On the third day, behold, a man came out of the camp from Saul with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And it came about when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to him, from where do you come? And he said, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. David said to him, how did things go? Please tell me. And he said, the people have fled from the battle and also many of the people have fallen and are dead and Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. So David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? The young man who told him said, by chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa and behold, Saul was leaning on his spear and behold, the chariots and the horsemen pursued him closely. When he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me and I said, here I am. And he said, who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, please stand beside me and kill me for agony has seized me because my life still lingers in me. So I, I stood beside him and killed him because I knew that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown which was on his head and the bracelet which was on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and also all the men who were with him, and they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan, and for the people of the Lord and the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword." David said to the young man who told him, where are you from? And he answered, I'm the son of an alien, an Amalekite. And David said to him, how is it? You were not afraid to stretch out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed. And David called one of the young men and said, go, cut him down. So he struck him down and he died. David said to him, your blood is on your head for your mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. <sighs> Father, I see now why in the Hebrew Bible there is no second Samuel, it's just one book. Because Lord, honestly, to begin a book this way is difficult. <laughs> Having read over this now several times, Lord, it's a hard story. And we come before you simply seeking understanding. We recognize every word of scripture is here for our instruction. And we wanna know why. And we wanna know what this has to do with us, what it has to teach us and speak to us. We come seeking understanding for our lives. But we come for more, Lord. We come to know Jesus. So it's our prayer that we might learn more of you today. And as we open this uh, kind of new chapter in, in this season for the Bridge Fellowship. It's a new chapter in scripture. I just pray for revelation and ongoing truth 
Lord, that would be spoken and that together as your body, we might learn and grow and be sanctified so that our praise of you would be all the more rich. We glorify you, Father. We love you, Lord Jesus. And we ask for your spirit to teach us this morning in Jesus' name, amen. Do you think Jesus ever got fed up with people? With all the people that he had to deal with and all the situations and all the problems and all the issues from the attacks of people who were opposed to him to the needs of people who, who gathered around him, did he ever get fed up? I'm gonna quote him, Mark chapter nine, verse 19, oh, unbelieving generation or unbelieving people, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? He clearly was looking at his watch at some point. Oh, for goodness sakes, really? This, I gotta deal with this? Now, it's way more intense than it even sounds. When he says, how long shall I put up with you? Think about it, not just in terms with him putting up with people for 10, 20, 30 years, no, 1,500 years before Jesus verbally expressed this exasperation, Numbers 14, verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people spurn me? And how long will they not believe in me despite all the signs which I've performed in their midst? And then in verse 27, Numbers 14, how long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel which they are making against me. You can go back further than that, another 1,500 years. Genesis chapter six, verse six, early on in the age of the earth, the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. You think you get tired of people? Try 6,000 years of it. Try dealing with and handling and, and facing and listening to the whines and complaints and issues of people for 6,000 years. Now, this might seem like a really strange way for a pastor to come off vacation. You know, did Rick just not get quite enough rest? I mean, what's going on here? <laughs> And I honestly struggle with this. I was reading this probably the first day of vacation. I was reading this chapter and just wanted to have it kind of, as I say to Cheryl, I want it to percolate in my, in my heart for a bit and just see where the Lord's gonna take this. And I read this and went, oh, wow, I, I need three weeks just to not, you know, deal with this. And, and, and the closer we got to, to this morning and the closer I got to teaching this, the more I thought, wow, I mean, this is... And the title, How to Deal with Problematic People. This is not what you choose to teach on when you come back from vacation. Usually you come back from vacation, you're like, I love you guys. It's so good to be with you. And it is, and that's true. I love our fellowship. And I need to make it really clear that I love God's church. I really do. That's why I do what I do. That's why I've been in this for so long. And on top of that, I really do enjoy people. I get a kick out of, out of talking with and hanging out with and having coffee with and sharing life with, with brothers and sisters and family and, and people. But as we open up this continuing saga of the of really the still somewhat new kingdom of Israel, remember, we went from a, a theocracy into a monarchy with King Saul. And now as, as David begins to step up, 
I can tell you, and you know, David has not exactly been enjoying the milk of human kindness in his lifetime. So we're not starting this morning with Pastor Rick. We're starting with David and where he's at. And, and we can see how he is such a man after God's own heart for even God himself got a little weary of people, got a little tired of the complaints, of the grumblings, of the issues, of the lack of faith. David, as we begin this second chapter in the saga, second chapter in the book of Samuel as, as the book goes, he's tired, he is world weary, he is heavy hearted. And, and so when we start this first chapter, second Samuel, we've got to ask, how did, how did David deal? How did David deal? Because from here on out, he's going to go on to be king right? He's going to go on to rule over people. What has been his people experience so far? Not good. Not good. If I was David at this point in life, I would be looking at a cabin in Montana, man, somewhere just to get away, maybe give me a typewriter. No, that's, that's sorry, that's a little random. Um, I was thinking about the Unabomber, you know, he had a, anyway, so very random. First Chronicles chapter 29 gives us a little indication. So let me give some background before we launch on into 2 Samuel. First Chronicles 29 verse 29 says, the acts of King David from first to last are written in the Chronicles of Samuel, the seer, and in the Chronicles of Natan, the prophet, and in the Chronicles of Gad, the seer, with all his reign, his power, and the circumstances which came upon him and on Israel, and on all the kingdoms of the lands. Now, according to Jewish tradition, those three chronicles were compiled into one book. That's Samuel. And even to this day, you look in the Hebrew Bible, there's not First and Second Samuel, there's just Samuel. And Samuel, it was thought, again, traditionally believed that it came from the chronicles of Samuel, of Natan, and of Gad, collected, collated, put together. That's the book of Samuel, because as you know, Samuel dies in 1 Samuel, so he can't really have written 2 Samuel. But again, it was just called the book of Samuel, and it was compiled from these three scrolls, and these three compiled as one, were not divided again until the second century BC when suddenly the book of Samuel was divided into first and second Samuel thematically in what we call the Septuagint. And the Septuagint, you Bible students know, is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. That great translation, probably the Bible Jesus used, that was made a couple hundred years, 280 years or so before Jesus by a, a council of 70, that's what Septuagint means, and so they came together and they, re they translated from the Hebrew into the Greek because it was now the common language of the day. And at that point, they divided Samuel into two books. And so that's where we get first and second Samuel. And again, it's thematic. First Samuel, as we've already studied through, it recounts a downgraded kingdom from theocracy to monarchy. The people clamored. They wanted a king like the nations. Well, that's 1 Samuel, we see what happens when they get one in Saul. But then hope is stirred about halfway through 1 Samuel as we meet this young man named David. And God chooses him. And God begins to call him. And life takes a dive from there on out for David. Kind of reminds me of Paul. You know, 
Jesus chose Paul. When Paul realizes that, he's Saul, he becomes Paul, and his life basically is trashed from then on out. That's gonna happen if you follow Jesus, I'm just saying. I know it's a weird thing to say. I'm just off vacation. But if you follow Jesus, it doesn't mean that circumstances in your life are suddenly just gonna be rosy. In fact, if you're really following Jesus, the Bible says, plan to be persecuted for it. You can assume that people are gonna be against you because they hated him first, right? And we've been over this. But we see David go through a decade of, of real difficulty, and then we start 2 Samuel. This is gonna take us, this book, into and through his ascendancy, which is why we're calling this, this second part, we call the first part ascendancy, this is ascendancy forever. Because now it's even bigger, now it's even more significant. It is the rule and reign of David with divine, eternal overtones, which makes this book really exciting. Now I'll give you a three-part outline because I always try to outline the book for you and we're gonna look at it like this, chapters one through eight. If you're a note taker, jot this down. Chapters one through eight, we're gonna see the establishment of the eternal kingdom. Not just the Davidic kingdom, but the eternal kingdom. We're gonna see it established and promised in these first eight chapters. Then part two, chapters nine through 20, we're gonna note a shakable king in an unshakable kingdom. A kingdom which cannot be shaken, but a king who certainly is. And then in chapters 21 through 24, the last four uh, chapters or so, we will deal with dangers, toils, and snares in the kingdom. So again, establishing the eternal kingdom, chapters one through eight, chapters nine through 20, a shakable king, an unshakable kingdom, and chapters 21 through 24, dangers, toils, and snares in the kingdom. Because David himself rises and falls, and rises and falls, and rises and falls in this book. Great spiritual successes and epic failures. This man after God's own heart is a man of deep personal flaws. Maybe that's what makes David so relatable when we really look at his life. You know, for those who look back and go, well, I could never be a king like David. Oh, trust me, you could. I could. I've never known anybody named Bathsheba, but trust me, you know, there are issues in my life. There is sin in my life. Not, not the Bathsheba sin. I, again, right off vacation. But, but, None of us are equipped to be a king like David. The faithfulness of David, you start reading through the Psalms, well, I can never write poetry like that. I can, I can never pray like that. Oh, yes, you can. And yes, you do. And we relate so much to this man because, again, he is after God's own heart. He is pursuing, he is chasing after the heart of God. He wants relationship with God, but he's a flawed human being. Does that not define every one of us? Hopefully, hopefully we are chasing after pursuing Jesus. Well, that's David. This, this book is really here for two reasons. Second, as Paul explains, Romans 15 verse four, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. 
We come into 2 Samuel, same as 1 Samuel, same as the entirety of the scriptures, that we might have hope, that we might persevere and be instructed by the scriptures. And that hope is an eternal hope. It's not just hope for today. It's not just hope we get through the smoke or hope we survive the fires or hope that we deal with the the issues uh, that are present and current. This is a hope everlasting. The Lord provides in the scriptures. It's why we study the Bible. And in 2 Samuel, the Lord, as I said, plants the seed of the eternal kingdom. Same kingdom we've spent a lot of time talking about. The kingdom that is yet coming, the kingdom we look forward to, the kingdom that is our future professional life while this is just elementary school. Kingdom is coming and the hope is right here and we will see that again and again and talk that through together. So that's the second reason that this book and all the books are here. The first reason is is very simply this. Um, Luke chapter 17, verse 20, having been questioned by the Pharisees as as to when the kingdom of God was coming, Jesus answered them and said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look here or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst, literally. Get this, the kingdom of God is among you. People love to spiritualize that. Well, the kingdom of God is in my midst. Well, and it is, truly, in in and among Christians and in the church, the kingdom of God is within in that spiritual sense. But Jesus was standing among them. When he says the kingdom of God is among you, it's because the king was among them. The king himself was right there. And that is first and foremost the reason for studying 2 Samuel or any of these books, that we might have hope in the king himself that we might see Jesus. Rick, you say that before every book. I know. And that's the point. Romans 15, 12, Isaiah says, and and Paul is quoting Isaiah 11, verse 10, there shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, or nations, in him the Gentiles hope. Isaiah was saying that. In him, the Gentiles hope. Not in a religion, not in a church movement, not in a group of people, but in Jesus Christ. That is our hope. That's our eternal hope. His kingdom is only our hope because the king is our hope. And we're gonna see that as we go forward. That's why we all need to study and pour over 2 Samuel. Because I don't know about you, but I desperately need the ongoing hope of a king a leader, a ruler, one who goes before, who knows the ropes. David did. David knew this hope. David leaned into this hope. And I think we need it more than ever because I'll tell you what, our world leaders aren't doing a great job. According to a June Pew Research poll, at the top of the list of American concerns in 2023, and this is Democrat and Republican and Independent, so this is kind of across the board poll, What concerns you? What are you looking at as we're coming into or as we're moving through 2023? At the top of the list, 65% of the respondents said inflation. 64% said the cost of healthcare. So apparently that's not any better. 62% said the ability of Democrats and Republicans to work together. And then after that, and all these ranged above 50% of concerns by this poll, drug addiction. 
gun violence, violent crime, the federal budget deficit, and declining moral values. I found that last one interesting that over 50% of Americans surveyed recognize the decline of moral values in this culture. Now, I only share that, and there are many more things on the list that people were concerned with. It's interesting the things that were the very bottom of the list, climate change. People are far less concerned about the climate when they're not sure how they're gonna get their next bag of groceries. So you look at these things, and I began thinking that, you know, here we are, here we go, buckle up. We're gonna get a political deluge of promises from a long list of potential presidential saviors over the next year. Year and a half, you're gonna be hearing it. It's gonna be constant. They're gonna lift themselves up and denigrate everybody around them. We've seen this pattern over and over and over, and the answer is not gonna come from a new leader. And it doesn't matter who it is. It doesn't matter how excited we are about whoever we vote for. The answer's just not gonna come. We're gonna find ourselves in the same mess of problems that humanity's been in for 6,000 years. And as I said, even the ascendancy of David, he, greatest king in the history of Israel. Now, Saul achieved even, or Solomon, forgive me, Solomon achieved even greater heights in terms of land and peace, but it's because he built on his father's kingdom. And the most beloved king without question in Israel's history is David. And yet for all of that, it is marked by rising and falling. It's marked by, again, great success, epic fails. And it's back and forth. It's not like he rises and falls and then rises back up. No, he rises, he falls, he rises and he falls again. And it is such a pattern for humanity that you have to ask, you read the book and go, what was David's problem? Let me phrase that question differently. What's your problem? <laughs> What's my problem? And the answer is very simple. The problem is people. And the truth is the vast sum of our hurts and our wounds and our frustrations and our disappointments and our heartaches come from people. So thanks for coming this morning. Have a lovely day. <laughs> Again, think about David. Think about David, go back, because this began in his childhood, the problem of people. In his childhood, he was the eighth son of seven sons. That is dismissed, unimportant, as if he didn't even exist. Remember when Samuel went to Bethlehem and Jesse presented all his sons and got down to the last list, the seventh son, and Samuel has to ask, don't you have anyone else? Well, <laughs> come to think of it, there's a little dude out on the hillside. I, what's his name again? You know, it's like he, he doesn't matter in his own family. How'd you like to grow up that way? And I'm sure some have. This is how David starts out. Then, then he has a, a mighty success against Goliath, but spends the next decade of his life running under the relentless harassment of Saul. People are the problem. He's betrayed by a people called the Ziphites, a people who, by the way, he had rescued. He was attacked by Amalekites. He was surveilled and mistrusted by the Philistines. Of course he was. He couldn't even fellowship with his own people, Israel. This is an ongoing thing. That's the first part of his life. That could really make someone bitter. 
You know, by, by this point, before we get to the first chapter, Second Samuel, and yet the story doesn't ease up. The problematic people that David is gonna have to deal with in this next section continues. It plagues him. Saul's son, Ishbosheth, is going to vie for the throne. Michal, his erstwhile wife, oh, she comes back into the picture a bit contentiously. She's a real treat. And then his sons, Amnon and Absalom, these sons expose a painfully dysfunctional family for David. You continue on. He, he has Joab, who's his commander and, and militarily mighty, but man, this guy's a manipulator. That's gonna be a problem for him. Ahithophel, his counselor and friend, is gonna betray him. He's gonna have to deal with a big mouth, stone-throwing guy named Shimmy. I mean, this, this goes on and on for David. He had plenty of reasons to be a victim of circumstance rather than a valiant king of Israel. Now, now stop right there and ask yourself, do I have good reason to be a victim of circumstance? Many of us could answer yes. Many of us could point at different issues, stages in our life, and people who caused us all kinds of problems, who landed us where we are, and we could sit there and wallow in it. David, for all the Saul's and Michal's and Absalom's and Ahithophel's and, and Shimmies of the world, you might think, <laughs> maybe I'd be better off alone. The only problem with that is you would still be there. <laughs> You'd have to deal with you and your people, and the problem is people. Besides the fact that at the very beginning, it was God, after creating us, who said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Well, I just wanna be alone. It's not good. It's not good. You may need a day off, but it is not good for you to be alone, Genesis 2.18. And don't forget, right now, what Jesus is doing. Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Matthew 18, 20, where two or three have gathered in my name, I'm there in their midst. This is high value to Jesus as less shared at communion. By the way, we didn't compare notes. We're in the back at the beginning of worship. Les leans over to pray with me and, and, and he says, the Lord's really put it on our heart, the, the value of the church. And I'm like, wow, because that's where we're going. Even with a title like the problem is people, listen to me. God so values the church, Jesus so values the church that he claimed to be the master builder of us. He's the constructor, he's the one at work. He's the one who wants to be there every moment, just two of us are together. He's there because he so values the church and the church's people. And in the church, whether it's from an external challenge or internal conflict, the church is people and the problem is people. So guess what? If you're in the church, you're not gonna get away from the problems. They're gonna be here. We will experience difficulty and conflict and frustration because of people. So what do we do with that? Well, we can criticize others. We do. We can complain against others. We can condemn. We can say it's their fault. Or we can just pull back and wallow in self-pity. Woe is me. There's a better way. There's a better way to be the church that Jesus built. 
to be the people that he longs to share company with. A better way to dealing actually with all kinds of problematic people, including ourselves. And as the curtain rises on 2 Samuel, let's look at these beginning verses, this, this intro story, if you will, because we meet the first problematic person that David is gonna have to deal with. Watch how he deals. Go back to verse one. Came about after the death of Saul. It's a very clear statement of a shift now. When David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, that David remained two days in Ziklag. Now, if you recall, Ziklag was David's town in the south end of Philistine country, and it had been burned to the ground. The women and children kidnapped. David had gone off to rescue them to fight the Amalekites, and now he's back. So David has returned. He's there for a couple of days in Ziklag, still smoldering, I would imagine, completely wiped out, maybe watching his people, you know, sift through the ashes of what's left. He will not stay there after this. They'll, they will move on to, to Hebron, we'll see. But at this point, he's there in Ziklag, and on the third day, behold, a man came out from the camp from Saul, with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And it came about when he came to David, he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to him, from where do you come? He said, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. Interesting language, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And then David said to him, how did things go? Please tell me. And he said, the people have fled from the battle and many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also, I'm gonna give this teaching to you now in four parts as we just go through these 16 verses, four parts to it. I'm gonna give you something else, so I'm gonna try not to confuse. But part one, an agent of shocking news. An agent of shocking news. The first problematic person David has to handle, has to deal with, has to interact with is this agent of shocking news. Now, when we were in 1 Samuel, talked about how we have a conflict here. This is a different explanation of what happened at the death of Saul on Mount Gilboa. Different than what happened in chapter 31 of 1 Samuel. So now we have, a, it's like a different twist. And, and you read the two and well, which one is it? Which one really happened? Did Saul fall on his sword or did this guy kill him? What happened here? And I told you before, this is either a fuller explanation of the death of Saul or it's a conniving deception. That this man coming to David is actually coming in deceit. Either way, even if this is a, just a fuller explanation, this is a man not to be trusted. There is deception in his language. He, he shows up, his clothes are torn, and, and he's got dust on his head. This is all to lend dramatic weight to his story. Unnamed, raggedy dude shows up looking like Pigpen off the battle lines. We're gonna call him Dusty. <laughs> Dust on his head. And he reminds me of another story. In fact, the description's very interesting. Torn clothes, dust on his head, raggedy, worn, weary. If you think back, I'll just read it to you. In Joshua chapter nine, verse three, it says, when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, 
They also acted craftily and set out as envoys and took worn out sacks on their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended and worn out and patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes on themselves and all the bread of their provisions was dry and had become crumbled. And they went to Joshua, the camp of Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we've come from a far country. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. And it was a covenant of deception. They put on their worst to kind of lend weight to the fact that they were distant travelers, that they weren't really from the land because they didn't wanna be wiped out. So in our story here in 2 Samuel, Dusty looks the part of a worn out, sorrowful foot soldier, but there's treachery afoot. Enough treachery to question, as David says in verse five, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. It's like, wait a minute. You're coming to me looking all raggedy. How do you know this to be the case? He clearly suspects Dusty's motives. Why'd you run to me? See, that's interesting. How'd you know where to find me, David might be thinking? Why come here as you've done? What makes this guy so bold as to come before David and bring such bad news? Unless, unless there's some personal gain to be had. Unless this guy sees maybe some political advantage, perhaps a role in the next administration. And that might sound a bit suspicious or paranoid, but it sheds light on a kingdom principle. So now, do this with me. I'm gonna give you this in four parts, as I said, and we've already got this agent of shocking news, but I'm also gonna give you five kingdom principles. Five kingdom principles as we roll along here. This is a kingdom story, all right? As we enter 2 Samuel, it's a kingdom story, your kingdom people, so we need to consider some kingdom principles for dealing with problematic people. How do I, as a citizen of the kingdom, looking forward to the kingdom and as part of the kingdom, how do I deal with problematic people in and out of the kingdom? Number one, something we've talked about a lot, but I can't underscore this enough, discernment is necessary for the kingdom-minded. Discernment is necessary for the kingdom-minded. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament warns against toadies and flatterers, warns against sycophants coming up and throwing themselves down before you, warns against those who are seeking their own advantage to your disadvantage. Romans 16, verse 17, he says, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned. Turn away from them. For such are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites, and by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Now, this is Paul talking to the church at Rome. Be careful, keep an eye out, be discerning. John does the same thing. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. When we studied 1 John a few years ago now, we talked about how you can read that and go, yeah, I gotta test the spirits. And so how do I test a spirit? You know, is there like a little kit that comes that I can test out? When he says test the spirits, he's talking about human spirits. 
And yeah, we need to test and be aware of what's going on in the spiritual around us, but he's talking about testing the spirits of other human beings as they come because he continues the passage, test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have also gone out, gone out into the world. So there's gonna be falsehood in the church, in the kingdom. They're gonna be liars. They're gonna be deceivers. They're gonna be people with their own agenda who will seek to undermine the agenda of the king. And so he's talking about spirits of problematic people. Paul, John, Jesus, listen, discernment is a necessity for kingdom-minded people. The love of Christ does not intend gullibility. Being like Jesus, the meekness, the compassion of Jesus, they are not equivalent to naivete and simple-mindedness. Well, he's so gullible. Yeah, but he's so Christ-like. That's not, the two are not compatible. John chapter two, verse 23. Many of you recall this. When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, observing the signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. Which is why early in his ministry, he wasn't just telling everybody, I'm the Messiah, because he knew they'd kill him right then. Needed some time to accomplish what needed to be accomplished. And so he was discerning with who he told. First person he told, do you remember? It was a woman at a well in Samaria. Why'd he tell her? Because she was the right one to hear. Because he knew her heart and he knew that what would come out of her mouth would speak the truth of Messiah. So Jesus was discerning. He said in Matthew 10, 16, to the apostles before their first mission, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Luke 16, eight, the sons of this age, I love this, the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than are the sons of light. And often that's the case. We see a shrewdness and, and, and a serpentine discernment outside of the church. And sometimes inside the church, we don't see it because we think, well, I'm a Christian, I gotta be kind of dumb. No, where do we ever get that idea? Luke 21, 14, Jesus said, make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves. Okay, so I'm not to be all defensive. He says, for I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. How does that work? I have to be shrewd but unprepared? No, <laughs> no. Our shrewdness, what he's saying is our shrewdness, our discernment, this is not book learned or university trained. This comes of knowing Jesus. It comes of being in his word. It comes of living by his spirit. He will give us what is necessary. We don't have to try and break it down, come up with lists or have spiritual training. We just need to be with Jesus and in his word and with his people and pray in the spirit and he will show us what we need in fact, I've quoted this many times, Jude, verse 20. I love it so clear. Beloved, building yourself up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. That's a four-part sermon right there. And that's what we do. And in that, we become discerning and wise, and that is absolutely essential. It is a necessity for kingdom-minded people to be wise and discerning. 
You do these things. Build yourself up on your faith. Pray in the spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Wait for the return of Jesus and he'll provide the utterance and the wisdom. Well, this guy is standing before David and David questions him because David knows something is amiss here and the guy responds, verse six. The young man who told him said, by chance, I happen to be on Mount Gilboa. Okay, right there. Oh, I, I was out for an afternoon stroll in the midst of a battle that was going on. I just happened to be there, he's saying. Yeah, right. And behold, Saul was leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen pursued him closely. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I said, here I am. And he said, who are you? And I answered him, I'm an Amalekite. And then he said to me, please stand beside me and kill me, for agony has seized me because my life still lingers in me. And so I stood beside him and killed him because I knew that he could not live after he had fallen. Oh, so merciful. And I took the crown, hmm, which was on his head, and the bracelet or the armlet which was on his arm. And I have brought them here <laughs> to my Lord, part two, this agent of shocking news now gives an alleged story. An alleged story. It's alleged because all we have here is the word of an Amalekite. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Verse one, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites. <laughs> if this wasn't biblical history, I'd say it's an expert use of literary foreshadowing. David comes back from having wiped out the Amalekites, nearly completing, by the way, God's divine righteous judgment on Amalek that Saul was supposed to already have taken care of. There shouldn't be an Amalekite in the land if the people had obeyed the Lord. If Saul had done what the Lord through Samuel called on him to do, there wouldn't be an Amalekite anywhere. But David has to go down and fight Amalekites who had burned Ziklag and kidnapped the children and the women and he's fresh back from this battle against this people, and here stands this guy before him, brazen enough to say, <laughs> I'm an Amalekite. Wow. Bad timing. Tell you what, if, if you're an Amalekite, this is not the right day to show up in David's court. Not the right time to come before him. And what was an Amalekite? sworn enemy of Israel, what was he doing in the camp of Israel, on the field of battle, and even as he spoke, or perhaps misspoke, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. There's so much going on here, we don't even know, we don't even see, but I'll tell you what, there always seems to be an Amalekite lurking about among God's people. We think we've taken care of them, they're still there. They're still around. They're still showing up. Problematic people in the kingdom. People who shouldn't be there. Amalekites. Troublemakers. <laughs> in Matthew 13, Jesus called them tares in the wheat, leaven in the loaf, birds in the branches. Now, I'm sure we have no Amalekites in the Bridge Christian Fellowship. I'm thankful for that, but... In the church, Acts chapter five, Ananias and Sapphira, a couple of self-servers. We see Paul address the foolish Galatians. We see him deal with the uncontrolled Corinthians. The lethargic Laodiceans are written to by Jesus himself. 
You have men who are actually named Alexander, Hymenaeus, Demas. Paul talks about all of them in First and Second Timothy, and as he talks about them, at first a couple of them are co-laborers for the gospel, and they end up hurting Paul badly. Even to the point where Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy, I alone am here, all the churches in Asia, uh, you know, they, they left me alone. Paul felt that. I hate saying this, I really do, but it's not anything that you don't already know if you haven't experienced it. There are selfish, hurtful, deceitful people in the church. And if you're nodding your head, you know, yeah, might want to check the mirror. I mean, how do, we how do we respond to this? I've seen this over, I mean, I've lived my life in church. I was born in church. Well, not exactly, but the next day. And I've watched it over and over and I've seen it and I have caused it. I mean, this is, this is, this is what happens when you put people together. There are gonna be problems and there are gonna be self-seekers. So what do we do? Do we call them out? You know what? Sometimes we do. Sometimes you have to. If someone is dividing, if someone is intentionally hurting, if there's damage being done to the body of Christ, sometimes there's nothing else to do but to call that person out. And for me, that's gotta be an extreme situation. So do we criticize them? Condemn them? Maybe when we get home, we close the door, did you hear what? Maybe just can the church altogether. See, people do that too. I'm just fed up, I'm done with the church. As if the church is this thing over here. You're the church. Two of you meet for coffee, that's church. This building is not the church. We are together as his people, his body, the church. So, so how do we deal with all these problematic people even within the growing, developing kingdom of God. Criticism and, and condemnation and, and giving up, there's too much of that. Too much of that. There's a better way, a better way. We're gonna come back to it in just a minute, but listen again to verse 10. He says, I took the crown which was on his head, the bracelet which was on his arm. I have brought them here to my Lord. The crown, the word uh, crown in Hebrew is, is netzer which is interesting, it means consecration. It's where the word Nazarite, as in the Nazarite vow, the vow of consecration, this would probably be like a gold plate, kind of like what the high priest would have, a gold plate fastened with leather around the back of the head that signified the king. I took his crown, and I took the armlet, that's the etzadah in Hebrew, and it's like a royal chain. It could be on the ankle, it could be on the arm or on the wrist. I took that off him as well. Why did this guy take, why does the Malachite think to take the crown and take the bracelet as he was playing for his life? There's intentionality here, folks. And he says, I brought them here for you, my Lord. What's he doing? It sounds like he's saying, David, I can give you the kingdom. Matthew chapter four, verse eight, the devil took Jesus up to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Just do something for me. And Jesus said, go Satan, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Second kingdom principle, there are no shortcuts to the kingdom. 
No shortcuts to the kingdom. And to say otherwise is a devilish talking point. David already understood this principle, recognized this principle of no shortcuts. In a word, it's called perseverance. Discernment is necessity and perseverance is required for the kingdom. Paul says in Romans 8, 24, in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. Who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we eagerly wait for it. Again, let me repeat, the kingdom is coming. The kingdom is coming. This is an assurance. By the way, when you know that, I mean, really know that the kingdom is coming, even when it looks like the kingdom itself is in disarray, you know everything's gonna be okay. You know it's going to be all right. The worst thing you may be facing in your life, if you know the kingdom is coming, it's gonna be okay. Verse 11. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so also did all the men who were with him. They mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the people of the Lord and the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword, mourned and wept. Literally, they wailed with a bitter weeping. This is instantaneous when it really hits that this is true, that this has happened, that Saul is dead, that Jonathan is dead, and that the kingdom is in disarray, they broke in the moment. Part three, this is what I call an antecedent sorrow. An antecedent sorrow. That is a sorrow, a preceding sorrow. This is a sorrow that comes before anything else in the chapter. The moment they recognize the death of the king, they immediately mourn. Instantly, everything goes full stop. Middle of the conversation with this guy. And they begin to weep and wail and tear their clothes, a sign of, of great pain in the day. There is no holding back. This gut-wrenching grief just seems to overflow, come pouring out at the news. Now, check this out. We're going to next week hear a more measured mourning from David. Because in the second half of the chapter, he's going to lament Saul and Jonathan. It's profound and it's, it's beautiful and moving. But right now, right now, this is a grief immediately observed. This is just guttural reaction. And did you notice the extent of the grief? It's for Saul, yes, and for his son Jonathan and for the people of the Lord and for all the house of Israel. The kingdom is in tatters. Everything is in disarray. King's dead, the heirs are dead, the people are slaughtered, and the kingdom itself is on the verge of collapse. And David and all his men around fall down weeping. This would be a really, I remember when we went out to, to pick up Anna Marie, Naomi, and David from the, the orphanage in Ghana. I remember the last night we were there and we're in the room and all the house moms and all the other kids are there and they always, before children left the orphanage, they would have a, a time of prayer and, and, and just kind of praying over the kids and it was really profound. And, and we sat there and I started, they, they started crying. All the house moms losing, you know, little, little David and, and tiny little Naomi, one and three years old, Anna Marie, 10 years old, and all her friends. Everybody's, everybody's weeping, everybody's crying. I was moved. I'm like, I don't even know these people, and I'm choking up over here. Stop it. You know, it's like they put a Hallmark commercial right in front of me. It's not fair. 
And I can't imagine being in the room right now and watching what's going on with David and his men. They are breaking. I mean, they are just weeping. And when we hear of the disarray of the church, there's a third kingdom principle for us, and that is that grief is the right response. Grief is the right response, not condemnation, grief. When we see apathy in the church, when we see people flirting with immorality, and there's so much of that, when we see churches and Christian organizations caving into and breaking woke social agendas that oppose the will of God, it's so easy to just rip on the church at that point. Well, the church sure is a mess. Boy, I'm glad I'm not part of that group, them over there. It's so quickly, when we, when we condemn the church, when we rip on each other, it so quickly breeds a critical, self-righteous, judgmental spirit. I'm right, they're wrong. And the moment I get there, guess what? I've never been more wrong in my life. Doesn't mean I'm not standing on truth. It doesn't mean that we don't call out the, the, the issues that are going on and challenge each other to stand in righteousness in this culture. But the right response is not condemnation. It should sound more like groaning's too deep for words. Grief and godly sorrow because Godly sorrow produces repentance. Grief like this, this produces intercession instead of condemnation. It is a righteous grief. And, and citizens of the kingdom respond to disarray in the kingdom with grief, just like our Lord Jesus did. When he comes to the capital of the kingdom, Luke chapter 19, verse 41, he approached Jerusalem and he saw the city and he didn't go off in condemnation. No, it says he wept over it. And he said, he said, if you'd known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes. He wept over people, problematic people who were about to crucify him. Jesus wept. That's our king. That's divine grief. That's the right response. And it's one that has to check our hearts. Am I more ready to jump on the bandwagon of condemnation and criticism before I even grieve and have sorrow over the sad state of affairs? A sorrow that leads me then to begin praying for this denominational group or that organization or this brother or that sister rather than just condemning, how about Lord Jesus? There's so much deception here. And through tears, praying for him to intercede. Philippians 3.18, this is what Paul said. Many walk of whom I've often told you and now tell you even weeping as enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. And Paul isn't just railing, he's weeping and he's aware specifically of his brothers in Israel and their rejection of their own Messiah. That kind of grief doesn't mean we walk around in torn clothing with dust on our heads. See, that's the Amalekite. But by contrast, there is a healthy kingdom grief over the devastation that sin causes even in the church. 
and where there's sorrow and where there's concern and where there is even personal offense in the body of Christ, let us pray. Let us pray. Come to part four now. Verse 13, an anointed significance. Part four, an anointed significance. Verse 13, David said to the young man who told him, where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an Amalekite. That is a sojourner of an Amalekite. And David said to him, how is it you were not afraid to stretch out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And once again, we see how significant this position is to David. Not because he himself is anointed, but because the Lord is the anointer. And the Lord had Saul anointed and David himself would not touch him. How would you do this? David called one of the young men and said, go cut him down. And he struck him and he died. And David said, your blood is on your head for your mouth has testified against you saying, I have killed the king's anointed. We've already seen this. David's, David's concern for his, his consideration of the sanctity, his respect, if you will, for Yahweh's anointed king. We know back in 1 Samuel 24, 1 Samuel 26, two different opportunities David had where he could have killed the king and he wouldn't touch him. He wouldn't lay a hand on him when he had the chance at En Gedi and at Hachilah. No, David said, how could I do this to the Lord's anointed? And now this Amalekite stands before him claiming to have driven his sword through Saul, claiming to have taken out the king. And David's like, how can you dare touch him? You know what? Even if Saul was already dead, how dare you take the crown? How dare you pull that bracelet off of his arm? Who do you think you are? David has an incredible passion for the anointed of God. Principle number four, reverence for the anointed king is the highest value in the kingdom. And I'm gonna underline that one. Reverence for the anointed king is the highest value in the kingdom. Why are we not more afraid of the Lord's anointed one? But where is the trembling when the name of Jesus is spoken? The falling down at his feet because of his anointed position. The awe, the very awe at the mention of his name. We are so comfortable with and casual with his name. And I love the name of Jesus. And I love singing the name of Jesus. And I love considering Jesus. But am I more casual or more reverent? There's a balance in there somewhere. He called me friend. He called you friend. So there's certainly that, that, that balance of close relationship, but there's also that holy fear, a fear that bends the knee, it humbles the heart, silences the enemy as we worship Jesus, who is our Lord, who is our King in spirit and in truth. Reverence for the anointed King is our highest value. Worship the Lord, Psalm 2, verse 10, with reverence. Rejoice with trembling, do homage to the son that he not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Some might say, well, shouldn't the highest value be love? Isn't love the highest value in the kingdom? Where do you think love comes from? 
if not him. God is love. We love 1 John 4, 19, because he first loved us. You realize without God, we would not know how to love. Oh, we might have friendship love. We might have sexual love. We might even have parental love. We would not have agape without the love of God. Reverence for the anointed king develops his love in us. Oftentimes, people will say, well, I, I gave my life to Jesus because I was afraid. Good, <laughs> good. Hey, if that was your starting motivation, fine with me. Afraid of judgment, afraid of wrath, afraid of the fire of hell, okay. Hey, if that made you bend the knee before him, fantastic. You're gonna get to know how much he loves you. And you're gonna get to know the tenderness and the compassion and the sweetness of Jesus, but never lose the homage for his name, the reverence for who he is. That's what develops love in us. His kind of love, godly love. In fact, reverence for the king, as it develops God's love, it sets everything else in kingdom order. As I revere the king, I become discerning over foolish gullibility. I, I, I have perseverance over shortcuts and even grief over condemnation because I revere the king. It's our highest value. Now, at the very end of this story, and we'll close it out here, the encounter ends with a royally judicial death sentence. I mean, he has the Amalekite killed right then and there. After a time of weeping and mourning that interrupts the whole thing, he turns around and says, how dare you lay a finger? How dare you lay a hand on the anointed king? How dare you do this? And he has the Amalekite immediately put to death. By the law of the land, even a resident alien should know better than to lay a finger on the king himself. And listen to me, if you have a hard time with this, if you're like, man, David, he's more brutal than I think he should be. Listen, whether this Amalekite actually killed Saul or again, just raided his body, his own testimony is his death sentence. He's the one who testified to what he did and brought about the sentence of death. David even says it in verse 16, your blood is on your head. This is not on me. That's not even my choice of this, but you leave me no choice. Your own words. Your blood is on your head because you killed the king's anointed. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 36, I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. Whoa. Every careless word? I've spoken a lot of them, Becky. There have been a lot of careless words that have flowed out of this mouth. And Jesus then says, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. I'll tell you what, the word you speak that will justify you is the name of Jesus. I believe in you, Jesus. I repent, Jesus. I confess to you, Jesus. These are the words that save. Because all the other words, if you try to count on them, they're gonna leave you in condemnation. And by the way, this whole uh, righteous judgment is coming to a world that is currently condemning itself and has condemned itself by its own words. This same judgment is coming on a people who have rejected the anointed king, Jesus. So don't be harsh on David. He is just carrying out 
the justice that is due this Amalekite. How do we deal with this? I mean, (laughs) how do we in this age deal with a world that rejects Jesus? How do we deal with a church sometimes out of kingdom order? How do we just deal with problem people in general? Last kingdom principle, and it is the key to all of this. Turn over to the fourth Psalm, and we'll end here. Psalm four, and I want you to see this. So turn in your Bibles. I'll give you the fifth principle, but we wanna gotta see this Psalm. You've been reading through the Psalms on my vacation, and I came across this one, and this is powerful. And this is the answer to dealing with problematic people. So you may wanna note this in your Bibles. Psalm four. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? Sounds like problematic people to me. David pauses, verse three, he says, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Tremble, or literally fear, and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Oh, that's beautiful. Verse four is a four-part sermon. Fear, do not sin, meditate, be still. Do this before the Lord. When people are coming at you and problems are hitting you right and left, stop, tremble, do not fear, or do not sin, meditate on your bed, in your heart, be still. Verse five, offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. Many are saying, who will show us any good? Those are problematic people. Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. You have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound, and in peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. Principle number five, offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. You can make that principles five and six if you want. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord, that's verse five. Just circle verse five, that's the principle. This is the one, this is it. Dealing with, with problem people, it, revi- it, it, it requires personal sacrifice. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness. To deal with problematic people, my needs, my wants, my desires, and my ego need to be burned up on the altar of trust. All these things that would cause more problems And this is the way the godly man, the godly woman deals with this life, a sacrifice by trust, trust in the Lord. David, for all of the failures that we're gonna see, yes, he rises, but he falls. And for all the times we see David fall, he is yet a godly man. Not godly because his behavior is perfect. He's a godly man because whether rising or falling, he always comes back to the Lord, always comes back to trust. Trust in the Lord Jesus for discernment. Trust in the Lord Jesus for perseverance. Trust in the Lord for a godly grief and trust in the Lord with reverence. 
And you will not only be able to offer the sacrifices of righteousness, but guess what? At the end of the day, you'll sleep well. Father, we not only recognize that we have to deal with problematic people, Lord, we confess we are problematic people. We conf- I confess, Lord, I have caused trouble for others. Sometimes unwittingly, other times foolishly, and sometimes, Father, even intentionally forgive me. We cannot talk about disarray in the church without beginning with ourselves and recognizing the kingdom disarray in our own lives. So I'm asking, Lord, this morning that you would increase our reverence for Jesus, that our trust would then increase. And as we trust you, Lord, the disarray in our own personal problematic lives would be set in kingdom order. And then, Lord, disarray in the church. Lord, may we grieve and intercede and pray for him and pour over our brothers and sisters. Rather than cutting people off, let us love more and even to the point of sorrow as we intercede for our brothers and sisters. Even, Lord Jesus, as you consider, continue to intercede on behalf of every one of us. Father, give us the strength to persevere. Make us wise and discerning. And help us at the end of the day to be able to say, not only do we wait for and love our groom, our anointed King Jesus, but we love your bride too. In Jesus' name, amen. 